It's gorgeous out. Let's pop some ducks. This is the Updark Podcast, a blend of upland and waterfowl hunting. Tune in as your hosts, Tyler Beaton, Jeff Ludicky, Matt Jeske, chat about training dogs and share their bird hunting stories, tactics, and strategies. Welcome back to another episode of the Up Duck Podcast. My name is Tyler Meaden. I am one of your hosts, and I am joined by the rooster assassin and mud motor maestro, Jeff Ludicky, and the Mississippi Riverboat gambler himself, Matt Jeske. What's up, fellas? What's up? We're doing good tonight. Oh, yeah, you sound like Got a beer in hand. Okay. I'm lively tonight. I got a nice beer. Ooh, ooh, oh! What? What's? <clears throat> what? What kind of beer? It's uh, Oktoberfest. Oktoberfest. I got that last twelve pack. Mm-hmm. Probably the last one in all the county. So I'm going to be milking it for a while. Try to stretch it out till at least Christmas time. Are you just Get my drink- Octo- my Oktoberfest fix? You know. Are you just drinking one every time we record? You just save it up for when we record. Yeah, you know, I got the other beers, the Coors Lights, and all the. Just the normal beers you can get all year round, but the Oktoberfest you gotta you gotta save those a little bit. All right, okay, excellent. <laughs> you gonna, excellent. Are you gonna are you gonna bring any to Iowa? That's the question. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what I have left. Except for like three weeks away here, so it's getting it's close, getting, man. I'm, I'm getting, getting excited. excited. Getting excited. It's gonna be it's gonna Me be a good too. trip. It is. I uh, I gotta bust out the spreadsheet here pretty soon. So, um, Matt Jasky, what do we got on the table tonight? I'd be water. I'm waking up tomorrow to take the boat out. So it may or may not be the last trip. So oh, gotta get up. Okay. All right. Fair. That's fair. I'm Chasing also ducks. Yeah. Yep. Let's go. Let's go. I'm also partaking in water. I did just slam, just slammed a protein shake so I wouldn't get hungry and sleepy um, as we're recording here. So that was, that's good. Um, enough of this small talk though. Let's bring in our guest because we've got another fun one tonight. Uh, you may or may not have heard of him heard of him before his name is anthony farrow he runs fetching feathers uh which if you're into upland hunting i you and you're on instagram there's no way you haven't run into his stuff before uh anthony welcome to the podcast gentlemen thank you for having me appreciate it looking forward to chopping it up absolutely we are too um if there's anyone listening who hasn't heard of you who's maybe not on instagram because your stuff's all over it uh, why don't you just do a little little introduction? Where where are you located? Just tell us about yourself, uh, your business, all that good stuff. Sure, absolutely. Uh, first off, uh, again, appreciate the opportunity, guys. It's uh, I want to make sure that you guys know that I'm thankful to number one talk about you know my business and what I'm passionate about, um, and number two, just to spread a positive light in the upland realm um, and upland bird dogs and upland hunting and everything. That we're going to talk about on here so i appreciate that uh my name is anthony farrow i'm the owner and operator of fetching feathers um, you can check me out on instagram it's fetching underscore feathers is more of my personal page personal hunting my personal dog stuff and then fetching underscore feathers underscore the kennel is all of my dog training uh, side operational stuff so you guys can check me out there um, i was born and raised uh, outside of kansas city Grew up uh, in an Italian family, didn't ever hunt at all in my life, man. It's not something that my family did. I found myself at a predominantly heavy agricultural uh, college at Kansas State University, and that's really where I fell in love with hunting, met my first gun dogs my freshman year, watched them work uh, a field in Kansas, 
then things started to kind of unravel themselves from there as I knew who I wanted to be and what I wanted to chase at that point, you know, watching gun dogs work for the first time. And especially that late in your life at, you know, 17, 18 years old, it's not often that you see things when you're young or at that age where you're really turned on or fascinated by them. And it was like, dude, it took me over. So um, that's how I got introduced was through college. And I started fetching feathers in 2016 um, as the clothing line. Uh, as many of you guys know, listening and you obviously you guys that I'm talking to, if you go to any Cabela's or Shields or any sort of sporting goods store, the Upland apparel, number one, is very minimal to choose from. Um, and also typically it's not the most fashionable or good looking stuff where it's like, damn, I'm, I'm going to look great in that while I'm holding these roosters with my buddies and my dog that I've spent all this time training. And so um, I started to see this niche. And anyways, I started fetching feathers, the clothing line in 2016, hats, screen print shirts, hoodies, you know, stickers, uh, things started to unravel and take off from there. Uh, I started fetching feathers, the kennel in 2018, just finished my fifth year. Um, and we are out of Bennett, Colorado, which is just east of Denver, uh, right off of I-70. Can't miss us. So um, I've been training gun dogs professionally for myself for five years, been running the kennel or excuse me, the clothing for seven years. Um, and I've been chasing upland birds since, uh, let's see, I was a freshman in college in 2004. So I'm going on 20 years of gun dogging myself. Okay, I have that. That was fantastic. I have so many questions. First and <laughs> first, I want to go back to you get to college. Did you was your roommate a hunter? Like who who dragged you out into the field and said, "Hey, I've got gun dogs. I know you don't hunt, but come watch this." Yeah, for sure. So um, actually, it started with turkey hunting. Um, so I was in a fraternity. Uh, I joined a fraternity, uh, which is probably um the odd decision for me especially at that time and who i was and you know just i was kind of a fiery young man and didn't have a whole lot of direction and probably didn't understand authority a lot at that time or respect it the way that i should have but nonetheless i think that the fraternity provided the structure that i needed to get through college and to have some teammates if you will and some buddies by my side and um, without that fraternity, I probably would have never met the hunting. So there was a couple older guys in the fraternity that, that were big hunters, um, and ran gun dogs and, uh, also owned a bunch of land in, uh, go Kansas. So that's where I went and started hunting roosters and stuff out there. But before that, I got into turkey hunting because outside of Manhattan, there's, I mean, there's a load of public land around Tuttle and Milford. And so for an 18 year old with a vehicle, you were 25 to 40 minutes away, depending on where you went on the lake, that you could get into any sort of waterfowl, any sort of deer, any sort of turkey. <clears throat> it holds bobwhites, it holds roosters. Uh, I mean, to, to be able to drive, you know, roughly 30 minutes from your, your frat house at 18 after class and go harvest something was like mind blowing to me. And so when I first got introduced to it, I was like, hold up. I can just drive out here. So as long as it has a green parcel on the, at that time was just a Weehaw hunting map, right? We didn't have on X all the way back in 2004. That's funny, man. I'm starting to be that guy. Holy shit. Um, wow, we're about the same age. Anymore. So you're, we, 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 yeah. it's, it's the, the, the back, real, back in my, in my day, day quotes, right? There was no <laughs> yeah. on X, bro. We were reading paper maps, man. You were turning that map direct as you were turning to make sure you were headed in the right direction yeah. 
um, so that's where it took off, man. I had some older fraternity brothers and I harvest uh, a Jake my freshman year spring. And dude, I never felt palpitations like that, like the adrenaline dump, you know, like, like what deer hunters talk about. For me, I had that turkey. My, my legs were full on chatter. Oh, yeah. Arms were going, dude, I couldn't walk. And I was like, what is this feeling? What is going on right now? And, you know, Mother Nature <laughs> at that point, she said, hook, line and sinker, son, it's over for you. Um, and little did I know 20 years later, it's what I, it's what I do for a living, you know? And, and so, uh, and that's how I got started was turkey hunting. And then that freshman year, I got invited by some of the older fraternity guys to go to Gove and in Gove is where I saw my first point pointers work. And it was, uh, some German short hairs and a Vishla, as a matter of fact. Um, and I watched them work a cut cornfield and, you know, birds are getting up and guys are shooting and obviously it's a fraternity deal so there's 12 or 15 you know buddies together and it's just a firing squad which is like what i despise most about the uplands now is actually like who i was when i became into it It was like the the brigade shooting line of orange and just pushing you know half mile sections wide and one pass at a time and anything that got up that was a rooster obviously was getting plucked you know but that's that's how i started um, and I fell in love with it. And then I hunted with all those guys throughout college. And then my senior year uh, of college is I bought my first bird dog from uh, from an old farmer out in the middle of north central Kansas for 500 bucks. Uh, no papers, no nothing, just just an old German short, all liver German short hair. And, um, you know, that dog's name was Gnarly um, and Narm and me, man, he was the homie. He He got me into it, got me obsessed with everything, took me all the places and I never thought that I would go. Because again, I was, I was, I was number one, very like, you know, influential, like easily influenced, I should say with the hunting because it was all new. So it was like, okay, so you can spring turkey hunt. And then it was like, all right, now we can dove hunt in September. And I was like, oh my God, you just sit on a bucket by water and sunflowers and just shoot these things. I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> so is it like, you know, again, like I, it's easy for me to get excited about it because I can remember and feel the emotions of like seeing hundreds of dove just zipping by and watching my buddies like dove hunt and, you know, dogs sitting at heel and marking and releasing and, you know, being directed and retrieving to heel and to hand, you know, and for me, again, this is the commonality that we're going to talk about this entire, you know, podcast. It was the dogs for me every time. It was the dogs for me every single time, man. It was like, okay, yes, the shooting is phenomenal and, and shooting birds is fun and, seeing new species and hearing a rooster cackle on the rise like what an experience as a new hunter you know um but i couldn't get over the fact that the dogs were seamlessly working for us but nobody was really talking to their dog or communicating and it was this mind-blowing concept of like how in the hell does this dog know what to do how is this dog running a line how does this dog smell these birds what do you mean when the dog goes on point He's smelling them anywhere from 10 to 50 yards. And I'm like, what? And he just points them. These, this was just such a foreign concept to me because I wasn't raised around that. I wasn't exposed to any of that until the age of 18. And it just, dude, it was like Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory. Dude, I got the golden ticket to the uplands. And I had, I just had like this, this, this never, never land of, of, of ground in North central Kansas of rolling hills and timber and, prairies and agriculture for days i mean it was just abundant in wildlife i mean you've, you've got two or three rivers that run through that whole area so then when i started to waterfowl hunt and i was like hold up we just sit next to these trees and let 
you know, ducks bomb down the river. And I was like, this is wicked, right? Then I'm watching dogs bust through ice and down through water and up over hills and then through another slough. And I'm like, right? Yeah. Like, dude, I'm, I'm geeking out on it right now, talking about like reliving the moments of, of, of that really stuck out to me that, that was like, yo, this is what you should be doing. This is, this is awesome. And so yeah. it was all of that stuff that led me to eventually long and short, having a early midlife crisis, if you will, like a lot of people do in the late twenties and early thirties, you worked your career for a while that got you your money and got you out of school but you knew that you really didn't like that job and you just were kind of like, okay, I want to do something, but I don't know what I do. I'm making more money. I'm capable. I'm building my resume. What's the next step. Um, and at the time it was an unfortunate thing, but you know, in hindsight, God knew exactly what he was doing. And I had a house fire in 2018 um, and I lost all my gun dogs in it. And because I lost my dogs, forget all the belongings again, back to the dogs because I lost my dogs in that fire, I had this overwhelming guilt. And, and so what I said to myself was, is Anthony, you got a chance. Let's see, how old was I at that point? 30 years old, 32 years old, 30 years old. I said, man, you got a chance. Your slate is clean for the first time in your life. Like you have nothing, you have no house, no, no car, no clothes. You go back and work a corporate job again, or yo, is this your shot that said clean piece of paper on the whiteboard? What do you want to draw on it? You're, you're 30 years old. What do you want to draw for the next 30 years on that piece of paper? And so I quit my sales career. I quit the corporate grind. Uh, I, I started to lease this ground in this kennel that I knew of that obviously I, I've come to own now. And I went for it, man. I rolled the dice. I looked over the cliff. I didn't see how deep it was. I jumped, dude. I just took the leap and, and hoped that it was deep enough when I landed. And you know, I am a man of faith. And like I said, at the beginning, God knew what he was doing. And, um, he, he, it was a push. It wasn't a jump that time. I had, I had no choice, I had to make a decision because there was, there was nothing else left. Right. Yeah. Um, and that decision was, you know, fetching feathers, the kennel, which has become the biggest blessing in my life and provided me the stage and platform that I have now that, that the people in the uplands know of me and the people that are listening or learning about right now. Um, I didn't grow up in this. I didn't have anybody teach me. I never had a mentor, never had any land or kennels or anything given to me. This was all through a tragedy in life that I decided to turn into the coolest, most badass life story that I could ever think of after the worst possible thing that you could ever do to somebody like myself um, and, and take my dog. So. Um, I've got five awesome gun dogs now, and, you know, I train 120 to 150 dogs a year uh, out of the kennel. I'm touching a lot of dogs and touching a lot of families and teaching people how to be handlers instead of just dog owners. We talk about this in Fetching Feathers a lot. Um, are you a dog handler or are you a dog owner? Um, and there's ways that we are going to find ourselves in the field that's going to say, Hey, I should probably handle here. But if we don't, then we find ourselves in a predicament in the field for whatever reason, whether it's busted birds or, you know, on the wrong side of the wind or, you know, whatever the case may be. So, um, yeah, I, I know that was long winded. I apologize, but that's, that's, <laughs> no, that's how I got started. We're here to learn like from you. Listen the the fire and the passion that you, we can, we can tell just listening to you is just, it's so cool to hear. Um, you know, that, that's awesome. It's, that's, that's really cool. And you know, that house fire, it, like you said, everything happens for a reason. And it, it seems like, uh, you're 
you wouldn't be doing what you're doing if it wasn't for that occurrence. Nope. And that's, that's just really cool that you, you're so passionate about the, the uplands, man. It's, that's really cool to hear and listen to. But uh, I kind of want to hear about that first hunt when you were watching pointers, right? It was always pointers. Now, were you hooked on pointers right from that moment? Or did you ever consider, you know, flushing dogs or anything like that, getting into labs? Yeah, no, great question. So it was pointers at a giddy. And then obviously the guys that owned the pointers were the guys in my fraternity that were taking me hunting or that would let me tag along, you know? So it was always, you know, the first two years for sure, predominantly pointers for sure. Um, there was, all, you know, everybody owns a lab. And I think that was probably why I never wanted a lab is because everybody had one. Um, and now obviously I own the most popular gosh darn bird dog out there. So I kind of eat yeah. my, my, my shoe, uh, as I spit my foot out on the other end is that I own German short hairs. There is no more popular pointing dog than a German short hair. Um, owning a German short hair as a white dude is like owning a Stanley as a white chick. I feel like it's like, it's, it goes kind of hand in hand. Like if you don't have your Stanley mug and your straw. Probably on a German short hair. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. Um, so I could call myself out in that. I don't, I do own the most popular pointer out there. It's pretty cliche, but um, I, I was hooked on the idea of pointing. Uh, and, and, and the reason being was because I liked the, 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 the adrenaline rush of knowing that I had to now walk in front of that dog and something was going to get up or some things were going to get up. I was going to have to identify the species and the sex in a split second. I was going to have to swing, make the shot. So again, I'm, I'm putting my mind right now into that beginner's mindset of where I was. And it was so much to take in at once that I was, I, I liked the chaos. It was, it was like, I loved the pressure and how much responsibility I had after the dog went on point. And to me, that's where that bond and relationship was was designed as Anthony, the dog owner now, was that relationship of, okay, I'm you got to point them, and then I got to get in front and find them and shoot them. You're going to hold while I shoot, then you're going to mark and retrieve, right? It was this teamwork dance kind of back and forth thing that I really, really appreciated in regards to the pointy dog. Now, did you ever consider doing any other types of hunting besides upland? And I know you did, you say you chase some ducks and turkeys, but anything outside of birds? Like, have you done any big game hunting? Yeah, there's okay, great, dude. You're just all the great questions. Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I've I've never killed anything bigger than a turkey. I've never I've never shot at anything bigger than a turkey. Um, I've always said that if it took away from bird dogs, I just didn't have time for it because that's truly who I am like and and it so happens that deer season antelope and elk are all the same time September as sharp tail season dusky season ptarmigan and all the other birds that I shoot early season right yeah but I just got back from seven days of quail hunting in Kansas at an older fraternity brother that I speak of he, he owns a few farms um, north of Manhattan now and he's a huge deer hunter. I mean, he's, he's got, I don't know, four or five, 200 plus inch deer on his walls. He's, he's the guy that shoots bigger deer than everybody on Instagram and TV, but nobody knows who he is. Right. We all know the guys that are the actual baddest ass hunters and the ones that don't have any social media. He's one of those, right? He just lives in the woods. Plus he's a farmer. So he's farming his deer. He knows what they're at. He's putting in all the goods all season. He's tending it, right? He's a steward to his land. 
and therefore he he creates you know you know big big deer but while i was there it was so hot this year it was 75 degrees by 12 or one o'clock in kansas this entire last week which is you know the second week in november that's crazy so the dogs were burnt out by 12 or one and i was like well what am i supposed to do now and he's like well i got a lot of dough and dough tags that we need to fill why don't you go sit in some of my stands and help me fill dough tags and then i was like so I've always ate deer. I've always ate elk. Everything that all my buddies give me, all my clients, they're always giving me meat. We've we fill the freezer all year with it. So it's it's not it's not a that thing. It's just I've never done it myself. Number one, my, again, no nobody ever taught me. My dad never taught me. Nobody in college ever introduced me to it. Or I probably would have. What I got introduced the first time was fraternity brothers, and what they introduced me to is birds, and that's who I became. By grand design, probably, like I said, in hindsight, you know, this is who I am now for a reason because of the focus of birds then. But um, long and short, I got on a whim, went to Academy, bought a crossbow, <laughs> Lincoln arrows with the crossbow. We sighted it in. I'm drilling, you know, I'm drilling everything at 70 comfortably with it. Um, so we're going to sit in a stand moving forward and start doing half days, mornings of quail. And then afternoon sits on some white to on some white tail, uh, in the afternoons. And, um, so I would say in the near future, uh, I'm, I'm finally going to be a man and kill, kill a big game animal and gain some respect from my fellow hunters. <laughs> Dude, how long do you think you're going to sit in that stand before you have to move? You're going to get yeah, so see, bored. So, so it's a redneck. It's a big, he sells a redneck blind. So you can stand in this thing. You could jumping jack in this son of a gun. Uh, you're doing a workout or something. Yeah. Your mind I, think right. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to be okay. I'll hit the calisthenics for a hot minute. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, that's the upland in me, you know? So I think like the, the Western style spot and stock on big muleys and the elk style is probably favors more to my personality. Um, you know, obviously you can hear it. My voice, I talk a lot. I talk fast. I'm, I'm long winded. I'm, I'm a go, go type of guy. Uh, I, I used to feel bad about it. I used to apologize for it. Uh, I'm 38, dude. This is who I am. I'm, Do I'm, you, I'm a foot on the gas type of cat. I'm not going to yeah. apologize uh, because I'm energetic about life. And, uh, you know, I, I refer to it as the, the snuffleupaguses of the, of the world that are just, do, 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 do. And man, that ain't me. My, my, my drum is beaten and um, I hope you can keep up because I run bird dogs and that's, that's probably why I do, but yeah, <laughs> um, I, I'm really looking forward to harvesting my first big game animal and experiencing that sort of, of, of moment uh, because I know what it was like to kill my first Turkey at this mm -hmm. point, when it comes to like small game birds, upland birds, there's not very much emotion that go on there. Um, and not even for the general public notice that anytime PETA is out, it's never after quail hunters, right? It's never after uh, somebody who's got a pile of greenheads. Uh, the folks that typically are offended with the upland or the hunting community is big game animals. Because it's bigger, there is some sort of emotional tie there. Um, and that's from the negative side. So, you know, I'm not focused on that. I know there's the emotional tie from the hunter and the respect that, that the big game hunter has for, for the harvest of the bigger animal. And I'm excited to to experience that like i have with birds you know i'll be I'll, I'll be curious to get to i would love to check in and get your reaction or feedback after that actually happens for the first time you know it like do you get the shakes you know do you not like what is your general emotional state because it is like you know it's it, heavy it, it it's is a heavy moment it is yeah. it's so much different like you know like 
I killed a lot of birds, just training birds, training my dogs. And like, there's not an emotional component to that, but you know, the buck I shot a few weeks ago, there definitely was, you know, it's, and it's, it's interesting, right? At the same time though, I shot some ducks earlier this year and I got the shakes from that. So, you know, I don't know. Well, I, I think too, I mean, you weren't, you shot a double on those teal and that was probably one of the first handful of teal you actually yeah. shot. I mean, a lot of that yeah, is yeah. how often you're exposed to that, that type yeah. of situation. Right. I mean, if it's your first upland bird or, you know, a, a different, a different species that you haven't shot in a while or your first big game animal, I mean, it's a heavy moment. It's a special thing. And, and that's why we're there. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if it's not that, then you probably shouldn't be out there. Right. It should be a heavy moment. That's, that's what it's all about. Well, you know, I mean, you, you watch any sort of hunting show or hunting film, um, even from guys who have been doing this their whole life, there is this extra amount of emotion that is captured and recorded on film. Um, and there's got to be a certain amount of respect, again, like I said, that, that you feel for, for the animal and that harvest. And I'm, I'm really am excited to, to experience that and get that opportunity. So my time is coming, like I said, man, for, for me to wait until I was 18 to get into hunting altogether. And now all the way 20 years later to kill and harvest my first big game animal at 38, like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm catching up. I'm, I'm still running Microsoft over here, you know, but, um, I'm, I'm going to catch up with the times. I'm a late bloomer clearly in the, in the hunting community in the world, but, um, not any longer in the uplands, you know, and, and I, you know, like you said, I, I, um, I'm a threat. I'm a threat on upland birds and my dogs and the dogs that we train, you know, I'm, I'm a problem to be had 20 years later doing it. So if I can make it to 58, then I'm going to be a problem on deer in the next 20 years when I make it to 58 too. So, uh, you know, to a long, long, lot of years left in the, in the hunting world, hopefully, you know, that's, that's what I can hope for. It's good. It's good. I'm going to go completely backwards here and go way yeah. back, but I'm going to, before I do that, uh, Jeff, Matt, I'll let you guys jump in and ask anything else on this topic or anything else that we've covered so far. Oh, so I'm going to go way no, back. Because I, I originally thought we were going to be asking about what childhood dogs you grew up with, what their names were, all that kind of stuff. So I, I had to shift gears here. One of my questions was when you went from, you know, that college, just watching to getting your first dog gnarly, how did you, did you have any, um, do you have any mentors in the dog world? Like, how did you transform yourself into that handler that you talk about, especially in the training side? Yeah, great question, man. You guys are nailing questions tonight, man. Um, I had an older gentleman, his name was Scott. Uh, and Scott was really like my mentor in college. He was there for a couple of years. He left my junior year. So my freshman, sophomore year, um, I really latched onto his knowledge and, and he was a dog trainer. So I was just like, yo, I'm skipping class. I'm coming to train dogs with you. You need anybody help. You need someone to throw bumpers. You need someone to shoot a cap gun. You need someone to plant birds. Uh, I, 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 I have openly admitted and will always admit that I'm an awful student. Dude, I'm, I'm a terrible student. I've been a terrible student my entire life, not just from school, but anything. I, I don't ask questions enough. Um, I don't read. Uh, I, I never learned to read, but <laughs> um, I, I don't read for, for crap, man. Um, I, I don't listen to podcasts often. And like, I'm not like a big Joe Rogan guy, like most people are, 
I like him. I like everything I've heard of, you know, from his stuff, Theo Vaughn, all of those guys. I love the little snippets, but I just don't sit down and, and, and like really spend the time to learn from other people. Um, Scott was one of the first people that, that like I was really open to learning from and he's, his approach was much as if I, like, I wasn't there. And I think that's why it was so good for me to watch because you weren't learning by him talking. You were learning by observing and watching the dog and understanding what was going on, learning through application. And that's, that for me was key was just to be out there and do it. Uh, and what I learned is that, that whether it was a lab or a Vishla or a short hair or a Cocker Spaniel. And what I've learned as a dog trainer is that God already did it all. It's already all there. Your job as a dog handler is to give them the opportunity for the natural ability to come out, to arise, to show. And it's only going to happen over a matter of time. Eventually, the light bulb is going to click. It's going to happen. It's impossible for it not to. Um, repetition, 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 man. Um, and so that's the way that I learned was through Scott for those few years. And I bought, uh, you know, I had NAR. And after Scott left, I just kind of continued. I moved to Texas, as a matter of fact, straight out of college. Uh, and I was working on, I was living on the lake, working on a boat club down there on boats and, you know, hunting on the weekends when I could in the winter uh, in Texas. And I was just training NAR down there. And then I was like, obviously the whole bird thing is not, not what it used to be down in Texas with Bob White. So I was like, yo, move to Colorado. And that was in 2012. So I'm going on 12 years now where I am currently. Um, and then, and then when I moved to Colorado, I found this hunt, this like local hunting club called, um, Colorado, Colorado gun dog association. And it was like a field trial club, but for the boys. So not AKC, not UKC, not sanctioned, no crazy competition. You could run an e-collar on your dog and treat it like a training scenario um so it was very relaxed and i met a lot of people through that and just kind of watched and what i learned more than anything like i have my entire life by being a fly on the wall man i i don't always learn what what to do it's actually rare that i learn what to do through observation um, but i learned exactly what not to do i watched how people talk to their dogs i watched how people handled their dogs i watched mm -hmm. the dog's response based on the tone in their voice or their body language, I started to pick up on things from handlers that were professionals that had been doing it their whole life. And it was very obvious they'd been doing it their whole life because there was no cooth. There was no love. There was not that relationship. There was not the bond there. It was more of, I'm here to work. I'm here for competition. You're here to perform, show up and do right. Uh, and, and what I've learned, obviously, just like anything, man, they talk about singing singing to your plants and playing music helps plants grow better bro if a plant grows better if you love it then what do you think your bird dog does if you show it love it's yeah. the same thing you do for your children or your spouse or your co-workers or anything that you care about in your life you show it love you nurture it you nature it you build it up now sometimes part of love is getting your ass swatted that's that's part of being a young man hello that was me right it was tough love. You know, I knew why I got my ass swatted and I cried, but in the back of my head, I was like, eh, kind of, I, do, I deserve it. And I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised that that's yeah. what got me my ass hit that time. Right. So 
it, it was a lot of that. I, I learned what to do and, um, through watching what I didn't like. Um, and then when the fire happened, man, I never worked at a kennel. I never trained dogs mass scale. On, on, I never cleaned for that many dogs, fed that many dogs, knew what products to use in a kennel, how to keep a kennel warm. What do you do if you get kennel cough? Like the whole business side of it all, foreign. Uh, man, I dove in cannonball. It wasn't It wasn't anything other than trust it, go for it, faith, right? Leap of faith, like just jump. And um, I, I had a lot of business professional experience in sales prior to doing the kennel. And so I approached the kennel business much as I would my sales career and managed it the exact same way and put a business model together and looked at bottom lines and overhead and kept track of numbers and receipts and started to balance things and say, okay, this is how we're going to make money here for the next two years while you're going month to month, hoping that you can have eight dogs in your 16 run kennel just to, to, to get by. Right now I'm booked six months in advance, five years later, you know, but that's, this is the story you hear on Instagram, but you don't hear what happened the first five years, you know, but, but it is capable. It is, it is very, very possible. What, what was the learning curve like that first year? Right. Because like the people love, like people that love to train dogs, like, I want to do it professionally. Right. You like the training, the dogs part is the fun part. The taking care of dogs is the oh. part, right? Oh, I mean, boy. cleaning kennels, feeding oh. them, airing oh. them. Like that's oh. like, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm bringing up some bad emotions here. You probably bury oh. down, but let's t- tell me about the first year in the learning curve with that. And where you know where did you go? And this part kind of sucks. Yeah. So, like, number one, let's just talk about the 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 worst part of my career, uh, and I think that most people in my career will, will agree with me. Maybe they won't regardless the barking, the barking, the barking, bro. Oh Oh, my gosh. It's, I can't imagine at this point. Like I, 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 I did the barking got to me so much that I started to do research and I found this, this, I'm going to butcher the word. It's called like dysphoria and it's a negative response to loud noises. It's an angered response, a triggered response to loud noises. And I kept finding myself when the whole kennel would light up, like I would feel like this anxiety and like this, this uncomfortability. And like, like I would feel myself tense up and I was like, bro, what is going on right here? Like, what is the deal? And um, come to find out is super common with people in dog training or or kennel environments. Like this is a thing. So the barking was a huge learning curve for me, which I ended up buying, you know, a thousand dollars in bark collars. I got enough bark collars for the county. Um, so <laughs> if you're if you're a barker from sun up when we let you out in the morning, we put the bark collar on, you keep it on through the training hours, we take it off in the evening so you can sleep comfortably and not have prongs in your neck. Um, but there is rules and expectations, but this is five, five going on six year Anthony, right? So um you know, it's now one of the number one things that people say when they come to my kennel. I've never been to a kennel with 20-something dogs where not a single dog is barking. I can talk to you right now in a human full voice and have a professional conversation about what my dog's getting ready to do for the three months while I'm dropping it off. Um, and, and it gives people also the, the peace of mind of knowing, okay, great, my dog's not going to come here bark for three months and then come home being a barker because it's been in a kennel and a run for three months and it's been allowed to bark. 
So we've set structure and there's absolutely rules to when you are and are not allowed to bark. When I first pull up to the kennel or somebody pulls up to the kennel, you're that you're greeting. That's a greeting. Somebody's here. This is exciting. Could it be my mom? Is that my parents? Holy shit. I think that's my dad's truck. They're all looking. Is that my dad's <laughs> truck? Right. I feel that you're going to get excited then. I'm happy to see you too. 30 seconds of it. Enough. All right. Now let's pull it together. We heard you. Let's calm down into that situation. Um, when we pull dogs in and out, right? I go in, I pull a dog, I collar it. I bring it out to put it in the players to go out to the field and train. They get pretty yippy and, and excited then normal. Um, but just like if we're doing heel and place work outside of the kennel, you're not just going to sit there and bark at me. Like, I understand that dogs bark, but you're not just going to mother F me the whole time in the background. So, so at, at my kennel, we take videos, we set up our camera and we take videos of us training your dog. And we send you two videos a week of, of your dog being trained with us. I, 60, I think I did the number, 62% of my business this year was out of state, okay? So I'm heavier out of state than I am in state, which means a lot of people can't visit. Uh, for the price that we charge and, and the expectations that we have for our clients and what our clients have on us, we make sure that you get videos every single week. So we set the camera up. Sometimes it's heel work, sometimes it's place work. Sometimes I have my employee follow me in the field and we're working birds with the camera. I talk to the camera as if I'm talking to you, you're in front of me. So I'm giving your dog pressure right now, pressure, pressure, pressure. The dog gives me the behavior I'm looking for. I let go of the pressure. So I'm teaching my clients. These are the commands that we use, the verbal commands. This is how we apply the verbal commands with the collar pressure. And this is the expectation of the result with that pressure that we're looking for. When the result gives us, the pressure stops. We've got a dog that's now understanding place. So we teach our clients through video because we live in 2023 and everything's through video. Um, this is an easy way for them to, number one, see their dog being trained and learn the commands and be a part of it. And number two, to see their dog is healthy and happy and their tail is wagging and they are happy to work with myself or my other trainers in the video. I think that if I was a, a trainer, as somebody who's going to a trainer, I would be looking at the behavior of the dogs that are there. And if the dogs that are there cower when the trainer walks by the kennel, maybe maybe he's not a, a soft hand guy that I want to send my dog to. Or if my dog's tail's tucked and ears tucked in the place training video that I send them, probably entails that your dog has been either pressured through a collar or through you know some sort of other body pressure or verbal pressure, right? We all know dogs behavior when they shut down. Every dog does the same thing. Ears go back, tail goes under, I'm in the uncomfortable position, right? So we wanna make sure that our clients see that their dogs are super happy and tails wagging and that even through receiving collar pressure, they're still in tune and wanting to work and learn and turn that pressure off. So that's, that's kind of how we run that situation. Um, but uh, the barking was the number one huge issue. Dude, the poop, easy for me because I have two slopes that spray out into drains and my drains go all the way out into a leach field. So we don't scoop poop. We don't have pea gravel. I just use a hose. The hose sprays down into the drain. The drain goes out easy peasy. Um, the, the sleeping situation was a problem when I took over the kennel. It's like, how do you get dogs up off the ground? But if you buy fluffy dog beds, number one, they're going to go outside and step on the wet water on the concrete for me spraying it or step in their own pee and poop and then come in and get on that fluffy dog bed so now i got shit covered dog beds which i learned immediately that's not a good option i was like all right cool maybe i'll just get like these little plastic boards and put 
little blankets over them, you know, a little comfort of home. Well, same problem, right? We put blankets over them. The dogs got their feet wet. They went in there. The blanket stunk. That didn't work. Um, so now we end up using Coranda beds, which, you know, are $130 dog beds for 20 kennels. Easy math, kids. Um, that was a huge transition for me to realize that if I wanted to provide comfort for the dogs like I expected, it was going to cost me money to do that. Um, but thank God for Coranda beds, yo. Uh, I'm not paid by them, don't know them, don't even talk to them, spent thousands of dollars with them. The best beds that I've ever used, they are wonderful. They hold up. Uh, we use the, uh, not the PVC, but the aluminum frame and then the ballistic vinyl. Dude, holds up. Yep. Now, dogs still do dig through those. Kennel dogs, you know, they're bored for eight hours at night and they want to dig to China. They will dig a hole through them. But um, so raising the dogs was a, was a big China kind of transition. Buying food by the mass? How do you buy food for 20 dogs? Does anybody know how many bags of food you go through in a week or in a day for 20 dogs? I do now. Um, that was an eye opener. I was like, holy moly. So come to find out my biggest overhead is dog food. Uh, second biggest overhead is going to be birds in that situation. And then, you know, everything else kind of falls in after that. So just figuring out how to manage feeding that many dogs and how, how to order, how, where do you go? How do you get a pro deal or a kennel deal or a discount? Or how do you order a pallet? What does the logistics look like on that? So me being the hustler and the broke individual business owner that I am and was, I was like, yo, it's 150 or $180 for you to bring it to my house. I'll pick it up at the warehouse in Denver. I drive an F-250 and I own a trailer. So for five years, still currently, I still drive 45 minutes into Denver and pick up my own pallet and save myself $180 in delivery every pallet that I order and pick it up myself and bring it back and unload it by hand into the barrels and, you know, keep it going. That was an adjustment of things I had to learn, you know. Um, and then how do you manage training that many dogs and a certain amount of hours a day and making sure that you're getting ample training in and ample time for the dogs out of the kennel? That was the, the kidder. Um, and here's how it works. You have no life and we work 15 hour days. So we open my kennel at 5 a.m. and we shut my kennel down at 9 p.m. So we open up February 1st and we shut down October 31st. We work seven days a week, 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. Right? February to October, seven days, five to nine. Um, they don't care if it's Jesus's birthday or if Santa's coming down the chimney or if it's your anniversary or if it's your kids. I don't have kids, but they don't care if it's your kids' soccer game, finals. Dogs have to be fed. They have to drink. They have to be exercised. I have have given my life to dogs. I was steward of animals and I have lost nine months of my life because of that. My wife gets the back burner. Um, what little family I do have around in Colorado or in general gets the back burner. Um, it, it is it is it is a time sucker. Uh, there is no weekends. There is none of that. We don't we don't get vacation Martin Luther King Day. Best in peace, my man. I'm, I'm thinking about you, but dogs got to get trained. So that's, that's kind of the, that was the biggest adjustment. How do I manage the business? And then learning that if this is what I wanted to do, there was no life. There was no personal life. There was no more summer camping and fishing trips. Uh, I didn't get to do any of that. So I'm shut down currently. What are we 20 days in? Um, let's say 20, 21 days off so far. So 
Um, it's the first 21 days I've had off in nine months, and boy, has it been good. <laughs> That's off to you. That's awesome. Is it safe to say that you're only training pointers? Uh-uh. Oh, you're doing flushing dogs too, huh? No. Uh, when we shut down, I had uh, 12 breeds in my kennel when we shut down. 12 different breeds the day I shut down and everybody got picked up. Um, so I run labs. I run um, goldens. Uh, I just had this English golden, the white ones. Um, I trained um, this long-haired dachshund to honor, point, and flush and retrieve quail. Uh, this is his third year I've had this long-haired dachshund. His name's George. Um, I had mostly pointers, but yeah, no, I run labs and the whole nine. We run all the poodle pointers, all the, what was the other half poodle that I just had? Half poodle, half lab, mate, labradoodle. So we, the whole, the whole process. If you hunt birds, we train you. I don't have access to water. Uh, I just had a gentleman call me yesterday uh, trying to, to prospect for dog training. And I just told him, you know, I, I do field work. I do blind work. I can do all your retrieving, force fetch, all of that. Um, I have no water entry. And I I feel like that would be like sending a German short hair to somebody who owned 10 acres to train on. German short hair run through 10 acres in four minutes. That dog was meant to run. Your waterfowl dog is meant to swim. And if you choose fetching feathers, if you're just a field hunter, I got your back. But I can't consciously take your dog, and I, I'm shorting your dog, whether you know it or not, Mr. Client, I'm shorting you and your dog because that dog deserves a swim. That's what he's supposed to do. Um, and I just, I, I always preface anybody who inquires me about actual waterfowl direct training, I got no water entry. I will, I will blind break your dog. I will whistle train your dog. We will directional train all of your stuff that you want for the field. Um, but I, I just don't have water. I can't, I could, I could dig a hole and, and put a pond in, but you know, I need to do that on someone else's dime. So any takers that are listening, I'm your guy. You Here I am. Any investors? I love a pond. <laughs> I've, I've got, I want to segue here, but I want to ask you one question first. And that is, what is the, what is the biggest lesson you've learned or how much, how have you evolved as a trainer from year one as a professional trainer to now? Um, so it's okay to have a program, but you need to learn what happens when your program doesn't work for that dog. And it worked for 85% of the dogs I had, but then all of a sudden I started to get more popular and I started, my phone started to ring more and I started to get more clients. And all of a sudden I was getting dogs at my, my A, B, C, D, E, F training model. Holy shit. This dog doesn't have any idea what I'm asking it to do and it's not working. Um, what I learned was, is that just like human beings and children that let's say it was a kid's basketball team. There's two kids that can, that can cross over that can dribble between their legs that can do left hand and right hand that could lay up left hand and lay up right hand. The rest of the kids are staring at the ball every time they're dribbling. It's still trying to figure out how to dribble. Okay. It is the exact same in the gun dog world, in my opinion. There are dogs that have it out of the gate. Very small percentage. Let's say I've got 20 dogs in my kennel, okay? Three to five of them just got it by happens chance, okay? You got it. I just got to work you through the program. The other 15 have pieces of it, but it's different. So one dog, natural nose, pointing the shit out of everything. 
scared of the gun or the cap gun on gun intro or has absolutely no retrieve. Okay. Then the dog with the exact same age that's in the kennel next to him couldn't point if his life depended on it, but is confident around guns and will will mark or or blind retrieve everything to hand with no chewing, no gnawing, nice soft mouth right to you and give it. Okay. There's just dogs that are good at certain things at when they're young and not good at others. And it's up to us as trainers to number one, identify what are you doing good at naturally? I can probably not focus on that as much right away because that's there. That's natural. I know that's there. Okay. All I got to do is put that in the oven and press bake and that bread is going to rise. Okay. But right now I'm noticing that you, you are lacking big time in these two or three areas. And because you don't have it naturally, it's up to me through repetition through patience, through love, through nature and nurture to help you grow in those areas that you're not confident in so that when I can get you even with your natural ability, now that I got this stuff here, we put it in the oven and then it takes off. The light bulb happens. All these things start to grow together. Um, the mental part of it for dogs is just as important as the skills. And you're going to notice that a lot of these dogs are just so mentally in other places during the training moments that you got to slow your program down or your A to B to C to D process and say, hold up. I think I need to skip A and B, go straight to C and see if I can find some sort of light here. And if I can find the light at C, then maybe through my dog training mind, I can loop A back in and we can connect these dots in between A and C, right? Um, so that, to answer your question, that, that was it, man, is I had a program. And then when I, when I didn't know a dog that didn't know it, I had to learn to shift what I was doing instead of saying, oh, well, your dog just doesn't have it because there's a lot of trainers out there, boy, and I'm calling a bunch of them out indirectly and I'm not that guy. There's a lot of people in this industry that just call people and say, your dog doesn't have it. Ah, your dog doesn't have it. You know how many times I get a call from a client that says my dog's been to two other, two other trainers already? Your dog's been to two other trainers and, and they just didn't have it? I, I don't know. I don't know. Now dogs come into the program. We maybe do things a little differently, or maybe the dog had enough base after the first two guys that there was something to finally build on there. I'm not going to take away from the trainer at all because sometimes it is about timing. You know, anytime I got a dog at six months old and I wore that dog from six to nine months old and there was just a flash. And then that dog came back to me at 14 months old the following year through the exact same training and the exact same program. Boom, 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 boom. Took off step by step, hammered it. Just wasn't ready. Age, maturity, experience, exposure, so on and so forth, right? So understanding each dog really and finding out what they're good at and bad at and how your program fits to that and then how you need change as a trainer, I think would be important. Forget professional training. That's as a dog owner. That's everybody listening. You've been taught how to train a dog one way your whole life, but maybe that way ain't cutting it and the internet's a big place now. Let's search a different method and see if it works for your dog. Good. That's a good answer. I like that a lot. <clears throat> All right. I'm going to, I'm going to shift the conversation here in a second, but Jeff, Matt, before I do that, anything else you want to ask, follow up on? Shift away, oh, man. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so I want to talk about GSPs a little bit, right? And you just mentioned, Hey, you know, uh, GSPs will burn up a 10 acre, will burn up 10 acres in four minutes. Right. That's the breed that right, you own. You own three GSPs. Um, I personally see a lot of 
GSPs around where I'm living, more and more of them where I'm living as just pets and not as working dogs. Um, I think he would be interesting because none of us actually, none of the three of us actually own a GSP. If you could just give like some, just give an overview for somebody, just pretend someone is listening and they are thinking about getting their, uh, about getting a GSP. What do they need to know about the breed? What should they look for when purchasing? And what is what do they need to have at home? What's the ideal setup to get that dog what it needs on a daily, weekly, monthly basis to thrive and not destroy that person's life? Yeah. Yeah, that's a compounding question. I don't know if we got enough time. That'll take up the the rest of this entire podcast. Um, it was the this version then. Yeah, this that is, was this loaded. Right? Dogs. This, this is working dogs and and. I, who am I to say you can't sell a working dog to somebody who doesn't hunt? I, I'm not in anybody else's financial situation or personal life and what's going on behind their doors or in their head and what they think is morally correct with their business. I can only tell you what, what Fetching Fetish stands for and what we breed and what we sell. Um, I, I would never sell any of my dogs to anybody who doesn't hunt, period. Um, it, it, it When you... When you work working dogs for a living and you see what they become because of having a job and, be, and giving them structure, for me to think that any German short hair out there is just wearing a harness and going for nature hikes and, and, and those sort of things, it, 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 it irks me. It, it's a hot spot for me. I have to be careful about what I talk about here because I'll offend a lot of folks. It's just the way that I feel about it. Um, you don't you don't take the fight out of a dog. You don't you don't you don't put a harness on something that was built to run. A harness is built. Let's search harness on the internet to harness something, okay? To hold, to restrict, to to keep down, to 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 withstand. This is harnessing. You don't harness a running dog. You don't you don't put you don't put stirrups and and bridles on a stallion. You let stallions run. It's this idea of this is what they were bred to do. This is what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to point, not point at squirrels in the neighborhood for Facebook pictures of, ha ha, look at Gypsy on point on another yard bird. She just loves it. <laughs> I can't do it, dude. I cannot. I cannot do it, man. <laughs> um, so to own a German short hair, you should hunt uh, to answer, to start first and foremost. If you don't hunt, I don't think you should own a German short hair. Um, there's a lot of breeds that will be your best friend and, and be a great hiking companion. That is not a dog that was built to, to chase birds in the uplands. So um, I would start with that. Um, exercise is the number one thing for every single working dog, lab, wire haired pointer, German short hair, English pointer, you name it. A healer exercises of utmost importance, guys. Um, and, and and a walk is not exercise for a working dog. Let's let's get into like what does exercise actually look like for a German short hair? Um, we need we need our heart rate high, right? We need to be panting, we need tongue out of our mouth. And I always tell my clients twice a day, we need hit exercise. So whether that's fetch with a bumper, whether that's swimming. With not a lot of breaks in between bumpers, get back to the place board, fetch, hold, give, they're at heel, fetch it again. I don't need a lot of formality in the exercise time if we're using bumpers, right? If I'm doing bumper drills, I'm going to be very 
with my body and all of the things and bring my dog to heel and hand and head up. Um, but lots and lots of exercise. Um, some folks like to do the harness and biking or the harness and, um, uh, the, the board or whatever that people are doing. I, I don't care how you do it, dude, loads of exercise. We have a treadmill. We put our treadmill all the way full incline at five mile an hour. And every dog does like three to five miles. These are my personal dogs right now in the morning, brushing teeth, doing coffee, making breakfast, checking emails. My dogs are on the treadmill 30 minutes at a time incline, nice, slow, steady pace, making them hot, making them pant. This is what I need to do. Right. This is keeping my bones in motion. This is like, you know, the devil loves an idle hand. This is this idea of like you can rust out or you burn out. If you rust out, you put it in part. If you burn out, you went out with your foot on the gas. So if your bird dog is perpetual motion, we're continuing moving. We're, we're greasing and lubing all of the joints. Now our bird dogs are also lasting longer through this sort of movement at home that we're talking about. Um Structure, right? Place training, being on the place board, just because we're at home and in the house doesn't mean that you should just be roaming and in the house free all the time or underfoot or at the desk or at the kitchen table or at the breakfast bar or at my foot at the couch while I'm watching my show. Um, giving a dog place and having them in a localized place is good for them. Crate training is of utmost importance for all German short hairs. It gives them that structure. It gives them the safe place. It helps this neurotic ADD, ADHD, all the DDD minds that German short hairs have goes, and it goes from a very macro mindset to a micro mindset. We can put them in a kennel and say, hey, everything's right here. Let's slow it down for a minute. Here's a bone. Love you. Enjoy your $700 gunner crate. You're the man. Here's your $300 fan with that gunner crate. Here's your $150 Pimperpedic pad that I've got inside of that gunner crate with your fan. Okay, we're, we're spending all the money on you. If we're going to spend the money, then also spend the time to create structure with all of the money that you spend, right? I think that that's super important is exercise and structure would be my top two for short hairs. Perfect. I would, um, I would expand that to any, any breed, basically. I would, I would say you need to have that structure and exercise with any yes, dog. Agreed. Otherwise, otherwise, dogs will just run you. Exactly. And, and this is what we specialize in. And this is why I have, I have a job is because of the, the lack there of structure and, and normalcy and rules and expectations for working dogs, you know? Yeah. Now talking about GSPs, you know, when you first bought your first GSP, Old Nar. you know, Nar, what were the what were the traits you were looking for? Did you know what you were looking for, or was it just, hey, this is cool. I'm just gonna go buy one of these things and take it bro. out to the uplands and see what happens. Bro, okay. I love this question, but I was as dumb and and just floating as any. Let's see. So what are you a senior in college? 22? 21, 22. I dude, I I I don't even remember how I found out about this litter. I think maybe I saw it. It was probably like one of those pull tabs that tracked her supply on the piece of paper that was like, oh, German short hair litter for sale, $500. And I was like, shit, I just those got my cool. Pell Grant. I got $500. Uh. <laughs> Let's go buy a dog. So I bought Gnarly in Cocker, Cocker City, Kansas. I'll never forget it, dude. He was, he was, he was just this little liver ball, man. I had no idea what I was looking for. Not a clue. But to, to answer your question on now, if I do know what I'm looking for. Hey, yeah. Anthony, if you were to buy a puppy and let's say you had first or second pick, 
what would you look for in the litter? Great question. I would say that I like the dog that doesn't come to me is usually the one that I like. So when you let the litter out, everybody runs to you, right? They're all going to say, hey, fine. I want to see the one that doesn't need human attention. I want to see the one that's sniffing around, or I want to see the one that's trying to get out of the crate or the the little, you know, gate thing that they're in out in the yard that's trying to climb, that's trying to get out. Uh, I like the independent ones. The, the something that you can't create, you know, you, you can always build the bond. You're going to build the bond. If you're a half-ass dog owner, you're going to build a bond. Okay. But what you can't create is that independence of dry, independent, wanting to hunt for yourself, wanting to explore it with independence comes confidence in dogs. I notice. Um, I like the one that is off doing its own thing. Uh, I, I just had pick of the litter, um, out of, out of this new Cocker Spaniel that I got. Um, and, and she was, she was by far bold and independent and out doing her own thing while everybody was, was more pack pack oriented. So I like, I like the bold independent ones. Nice. Now, do yeah. you have a preference on gender? Do you yes. pick females over males? Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm a male guy, ten thousand okay. percent, dude. I have owned, uh, I've sold three female short hairs. Tequila is the first one that I've kept, um, and I I've been key, I've been buying females so I could start my kennel operation. All the females I had had traits that I didn't like or that I didn't want to rebreed, and I wasn't just like, oh yeah, now I'm a dog trainer. I'm just going to get a female short hair, and because I got a female, she's the one that I breed. Um, it. Call me crazy, but it's much kind of like I was thinking about the dating life. Like every girl that you met may not have been a breeder. So just throwing it out there, you, 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 you don't just breed all the ones that you have or that you own. And that goes for your male dog, too. And I wanted them to be prudent. I wanted them to, to have the hunt. I wanted them to have the house manners. I wanted them to have the kennel manners. Um, I noticed that females, they learn typically slower. They're much later to mature. They're not as confident. They're very codependent. Um, the gun breaking process and the collar breaking and intro process is is always more painstaking and and a little bit more um, uh, stepping on toes, you know, kind of tiptoeing a little bit because you don't want to overpressure the dog and you have to play to the mental a lot. Um, but what I will say is that when the females do turn it on, they turn it on times a million and just sail past all of the boys who have been picking it up from day one. Um, they are more loyal. I notice uh, it seems they want to please for you more than they want to please for themselves. Um, but which is what I like about gun dogs. I, I want, like I said, I, I like the one that is hunting for him. Like he's never had a bowl of a nook shook in his life, which they get every day. I want a dog who's hunted like he's never had a bowl of food in his life and he's out there pointing birds because he's hungry, you know, and that's my, my, my best and my favorite bird dog gnarly that, that dog hunts like he's never had a meal and that shit fires me up, man. Like it, it's like having a teammate, like, you know, that, that would grab you by the face mask and just slam helmets together. And it was like, all right, well, I'm, I'm here for it, bro. And I'm, I'm going to war with you. Let's ride. Smoke's got that, like, I'm hungry and I'm out here working for a purpose and I just, I feed off of, of his tenacity, man. Um, the males just give me a little bit more of that oomph and that drive and that I'm, I'm willing to, to go into whatever you're asking me to go in and find birds. That, 
that's what I that's what I look for. And the independent dogs show that, dude. You can't deny it. Now, Tyler, he just uh, warmed your heart with that answer, didn't he? I did. Yeah, I, I, I me and Matt I like both have we both yeah. have female dogs. Me and Matt, but Tyler's got one of each. But, uh, oh yeah. But the big male dog, the big red dog, he's uh, he's the one. He's he's the one. The 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 younger dog. She's like 15 months now. She's a female. She's just she's been much slower to mature. Um, Weird. It's also she would have benefited much more if I did not have another dog, as well though too. Um, he's been away for a few days on um, doing some like tower hunts and stuff, and totally, yep. she's a totally different dog. And she's very much able to stay in that puppy stage because he's here and then she just wants to play. She doesn't had she hasn't had to grow up because she hasn't been on her own per se. Mm -hmm. Among mm -hmm. other things, right? She'll get there eventually, right? Um yeah. you will. But, not all uh, of them do. Uh, yeah. and that's that's something that I talk to my clients about. Like, dude, not everybody's Peyton Manning for a reason. Not everybody born with the golden arm. It, it just doesn't work that not every dog has got it. Um, and, and I hate to say this, it's hard to fall on your sword. So I went and hunted Kansas for a week of bobs. I brought a client out for the first three days. I sold him a dog that I started and then I trained his other dog, his flushing dog. So I sold him a German short hair that I started and trained. And then I also trained his golden retriever to flush honor points and the whole nine, right? Absolutely unbelievable. That pairing, it's the first time I got to hunt with him. They pointed multiple wild cubbies, the golden honored until her name was called to release, to get out in front and flush. Everything went great. Then I brought a, another client and buddy out who bought a dog out of a breeding of mine. Um, and this dog just does not have it. He did not want to get in and hunt cover. He was pussyfooting around. His feet were very tender. He's, he, he's got soft feet in general. He doesn't have the mental. He didn't hunt hard. Um, he, he did get birdie a few times. He did find himself in some singles and, and obviously turn it on. He's gun broken, all of that. But um, that that's not a dog on my string. And that's hard as, a, as the breeder. And that's the first one that I've ever seen that I've bred that just wasn't it, didn't have it from the beginning. Um, and I hunted with that dog for two and a half days. And, and it was hard for me, again, to as a breeder, to see that dog just not have the, the desire and the fire that his dad and his mom have. I own the father of, of that breeding and my buddy owns the, the female of that breeding. But um, perfect example of it, man. I mean, it, it does not discriminate professional dog trainer or breeder or just client dog buyer. Not every dog got it. And, and that's also why I sold three females um, I, 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 because I dedicate as much time into our dogs as we do being a trainer and then obviously hunting in the off season and the amount of money that it costs us to feed them and vet bills and all of that. If you don't have it, I can't, I can't keep you. And for me at this point, it's a business. If I kept you, I'd have 46 dogs and 22 of them would hunt. And I think that's probably the odds of like really good hunters to just all right dogs is it, probably 50%, man. You know, I would say that the dogs that come into my kennel 20 at a time, I, half of them got it out of the gate and half of them don't. And by the end of it, I would say about 80% of them are good, hard hunting bird dogs. And there's still 20% that are collar conditioned, gun broke, 
and we'll get out there and hunt with you. But that in, in a group full of buddies, your dog's not the one with the points, you know, kind of out there for the walk and the, the camaraderie. Right. So that's the tough part of this is in owning dogs and being a dog trainer and talking to you guys and to clients is like, you know, your dog might not have it, you know, and that's, that's a hard thing for any of us to hear. You know, nobody wants to hear that their kid's not good enough, you know? <laughs> oh, that's, um, I, the, the, the young dog I have, she's got, she's there's, there's flashes. She'll get there eventually. But I, I do agree with you that not every dog is blessed yeah. with that natural ability, that yeah. natural mental clarity and focus that they just they know what they're doing and enough exposure yeah. and the right training gets them to the place where they're just a machine out in the field yeah yeah my youngest tequila is two years old um and she had two two cubby fines and a couple singles this week um but she is far behind where she should be at two years old and if she didn't lose her eye and uh with that infection that she got last year and her having one eye um, I wouldn't probably have kept her and bred her. Um, I probably would have sold tequila as well because I think that she is a touch behind in the field. Um, she's my biggest running dog. She's a four to 600 yard dog at all times. Um, but she's still unsure. She goes on point. She went on point on a covey, uh, ended up being about 12 birds flagging tail, just flagging on point. And I'm like, sister, you're, you're two years old. You've pointed over 500 birds at the ranch that I trained you on. And you still flag in uncertainty and immaturity on a covey of birds. That's what flagging is. When the tail wags on point, we call it flagging for those that don't understand. It's a confidence and a maturity thing. And I'm like, two years and you still are flagging on point. You can't pick stupid, I guess, the Forrest Gump thing. Like, there are just some dogs that just ain't got it. And I think that at best, tequila is going to be mediocre by the time that she's four. When she really settles in and, you know, at matures as a young lady in her mind and grows and, and has that experience by four, I think tequila is going to be a C plus B minus dog at best. If I were to grade her in, in, in all of the categories, I, I would say that she's probably going to be a, a C dog, C plus dog. No. And that's not easy to say, dude. This is, this is, I'm, 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 I'm your personal dog. Yeah. My dog is mediocre, but this is the fact of the matter. Smoke and Fuego are the exception, right? The, my males are upper echelon. They've they pointed the entire United Ups, Upland Slam in four years. The, my, my males are four, and I've shot the Upland Slam minus one species in four seasons over them. They're, they're the bar. So anything other than that, poor tequila, you're a C, shorty, just by default. Your, your dad and your uncle are monsters, um, and that's the expectation, right? Yeah. Have you explored the versatile hunting dog stuff at all? Or do you, I mean, I know you're primarily doing upland stuff but with your personal dogs. Have you done any of that versatile stuff with them? Yeah. So Nar was a duck dog and a, and an upland dog. So he's my, my first German short hair and I trained him. Um, he was full duck and goose dog dude would retrieve all of that. I haven't got any of the competition stuff personally. Uh, I do train for some of the versatile hunt stuff for the people that are into the NAVDA and NASTRA and, uh, UT testing and all of that. Um, my Cocker Spaniel Rowdy, my three-year-old Cocker Rowdy, um, he's my flusher and honors points, but he's also my duck dog. Um, so he, he, he sits on a marsh stand or in a duck line and 
puts on his little his vest and in the dead of December and January, we'll retrieve mallards out of the river. No problem. No questions asked. Um, but when I, after I lost gnarly and radar in the house fire, um, it was a lot like my high school athletic career. Jack of all trades is the master at none. Uh, I was a four sport letterman, but was, I was good, but I was just all right at all of them. And if, my parents and myself had any sort of mind about it. It would have been like, Hey, maybe just do two or the one that you're really good at. Maybe get some free schooling instead of going to K state for five years and spending a bunch of money and getting drunk and having a good time and falling in love with bird dogs and create fetching feathers. Um, but maybe if I took another route, <laughs> this wouldn't have happened. So, uh, thankful again for who I am, what I become. But, um, after the fire, I said, you know what? I don't want my pointers to be, um, uh, foul dogs. I, I want you to master what you were born and bred to do. And your name is German short hair pointer, not German short hair retriever. So let's figure out how to point upland birds better than anybody that we know. Um, and so in the upland community, uh, more so the training community, I would be referred to as a meat dog trainer. So um, because I don't train for trophies or ribbons and I haven't won any prizes, um, with planted birds in a controlled field with people judging my dog on a piece of paper. Um, we train at fetching feathers for hunting, uh, to put meat on the table, to have cups full of whiskey and cold beers in hand and some good tunes rolling and buddies high-fiving and laughing and telling stories. And that's what I wanted to create when I started my kennel, because that's where the memories that I had my dog. So I lost in that fire. The best memories I had were sitting at a campfire with a couple of buddies, drinking some scotch, telling hunting stories and listening to people's lives and who they are and where they're from. And just like we are right now, except in person. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was really, really cool. And it was endearing. It was something that I fell in love with. That was like an ancillary part of the uplands that I didn't even know existed. Right. So we're only we've only talked about the hunting and the training. And then all of a sudden there's this campsite of life that opens up this whole world of people and human and men in general and man it was it was awesome dude i was hooked i was hooked from from every aspect of it all yeah it's interesting you you mentioned the hunt test thing and this is one of the things i wanted to talk about i was listening to a, a podcast episode that you did with lone duck i think it was back in 2018 and he was asking if you did hunt tests and i know you talked about it a little bit that you're you know you're how competitive you are was really kind of taken away from what you love the most about the uplands. You know, when you started getting into the hunt test game, it was too much. And it was the competitive side of you wasn't allowing you to really focus on what you love the most about hunting, right? Just being with your dogs and Which is the dog. creating memories and, you know, just all that good stuff. And that, that really spoke to me when I, when I listened to that. Yeah. I think that, that that's all of us, right? There we're all competitive dudes, no matter what. It doesn't even matter if it's like some dude at the bar and I'm like, oh, he, he got his pint dropped the same time I did. He has no idea I'm in competition with him. I saw his pint get dropped the same time and every about two minutes I look over and I'm like, oh shit, he's, he's got more of his pint down than I do. Right? So I'll drink a little bit more. This is who I am. I, I'm, it's constant competition. Um, and, and I think that's my, my career before I was in sales, construction sales. So it's sales is all competition and it's always one up and, and who is this and how can I get the deal and how, you know, um, and 
and I am a competitor from, you know, like I said, high school sports and it did, dude, it ruined it for me. Um, and that sucks that I, I can't enjoy something that I probably should and would be good at. Um, but my competitive nature just doesn't allow me. And I'm thankful that I'm at least aware of that and able to pull myself away from that instead of just run my face through the ground and wonder why I hate every weekend at hunt tests and come home grumpy. Right. And like I said, and that's what it came down to, man. I think I maybe won. I think I won a field trial one weekend, won or took second that weekend. And I, and I was pissed off driving home and I got stopped at a light when I finally made it back into town. And I was just like, bro, you, you won or did good, right? Whatever the place was, you did really well and you're pissed off and your dogs no, you're pissed off and they didn't do anything wrong, but give you a trophy. Um, and it wasn't a them thing. It was strictly a me thing. And I just realized that slowing things down and just being me with dogs in a field without all that extra eye and competition and, you know, winning trophies and putting a number on how good you are, put me in a room and tell me that you're going to grade me, dude, it's over. Yeah. It's over. I'm sizing everybody up and I'm figuring out whose throat I'm cutting first and how I can outsmart this guy and Mr. Miyagi him, John Wick this guy. You're getting Batman. Homeboy over here is getting the Superman sweep, bro. It's it's just the way that my competition mind works. And I was like, you know what? Let's just do what Fetching Feathers intended to be when I created it. And it's this. Shooting the shit with the boys keeping things light, putting the dogs first, putting all of the extra stuff aside, the competitions, the woes, the bills, the insecurities, like that's what hunting does for most of us. Whether we know it or not, we're all trying to escape something when we go on these hunting trips, typically, whether it's just the work grind or relationship stuff or family issues, or, you know, it's hard to turn the news on right now and be pretty happy what you see. You know, we're all stressed out about something. I think that that hunting, the uplands, waterfowl, spring turkey woods, fall deer stand, it's all an escape for us, you know, to get away. And I feel like if hunting becomes something, anything other than a place of escape, then, you know, there's probably something wrong in that recipe. And so that's what hunt testing was for me. And I just, dude, I had to. I had to chalk it up. And I hope that maybe when my knees and, and ankles and hips aren't able to walk Chucker Hills that, and, and I'm a little older and I'm not as fiery and I don't have as much testosterone and ignorance pumping through me that I can settle in and, and, and enjoy field trialing because I would love to go compete with my dogs and, and do that on the weekends, you know, but, but right now, you know, campsite and big open hills are, are where we're at. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the main, the main reason that, that spoke to me was, you know, when I first started hunting with my own dog, you know, I, I really had a hard time not comparing her to other pointers that I would see online, or I would read about at hunt tests, you know, and all that stuff is amazing to see, but it's, you know, as an amateur handler and hunter, you know, it, it's when your dog isn't performing perfectly out in the field, you know, you can get so hard on yourself and it's not fair to the dog. To be that way right and it, it took me a couple years to just realize that hey you know we're out here we're killing birds like we're doing it our way who cares what everybody else is doing this is what we want to do you know she's meeting my expectations as a hunter 
And that's all that matters, right? Everybody's expectations are different, but as long as your dog meets your expectations and you guys are having a good time and, you know, and being outside and loving the outdoors and shooting some birds, I mean, that's, that's all that matters. Right. And I think once I finally let that go, I was able to enjoy it so much more than I was initially. Right. When I wasn't comparing her to every other dog that I would see online. Right. Cause they're all different. Right. Yep. It's, it's hard too. Cause every dog you see online, you only see the highlights too. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Matt and I both run weekend hunt tests, which are different than field trials because field trials you're competing against every other dog. Whereas hunt tests, you're competing against the standard, but I'd be lying if I didn't say I watch other dogs run and what, and, and are looking at them. But, you know, you said something earlier, right? It, when we first started, it's progress, not perfection, right? Yeah. Every hunt test, I go home, even if we pass and it's like, well, we got to work on this, this, and this, right? Because you're working, at least for me, my mindset as I'm working toward perfection, it's not attainable, right? But I'm working toward that. There's always, you know, nooks and crannies to polish up there. Um, so it's, but if you are going to compare yourself to other people's dogs, you will be unhappy. Yeah. You just will be, right? You have to you have to define what you want out of your dog and work toward that. And then when they get there, be happy. If someone else has a different standard, a different thing that they want their dog to do, and they put in more time and more effort and more money, they, they're probably going to have a different dog than you have. And that's okay. Like that's, we just have to be okay with that as dog owners and as hunters. Yeah. And, and as a society, I mean, this is a whole, we're in a, we're in a world where if it differs from the way you do it, it's wrong. And it's just like, this goes, this doesn't even go from like a dog owner. This goes from a, a, a kennel owner. It, the way that I want my dogs trained might be different than, than Joe Schmo and how he trains his dogs. That doesn't make me wrong and him right or him, him, him vice versa. It's okay that my standard is different than your standard. And I think that, that yeah, I think this is a really good way you guys put it is just like, you as a dog owner need to decide what your standards are, what you want. And then you need to decide, are those expectations attainable? And if they are, then how long they it's going to take, right? Because it's a multi-part deal. Number one, can we achieve this? And the answer is always going to be yes. Of course you can achieve it. But what is practical is how long. And I think that's the pressure that we put on our dogs is, well, I saw, I, I saw Jeff's dog sticking birds last weekend and my dog just blew through three cubbies what the hell is going on well not every batter hits a home run and bats a thousand uh you know all all season long in the batter's box like you're not gonna have a great game every time my 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 males who are my go-to my lean-ons have bad days on the occasion and i'm like damn dude i hate when you guys are in batting slumps it's hard to watch it is hard to watch your dog in a slump especially when you know their potential Um, And that's like being a parent or being a coach. Like it's tough to watch your student fail, struggle when you've seen them compete at a level that you know they're capable of, that they've shown you that they can compete at a certain level, you know? Um, But yeah, what's, there's, there's some, there's some saying uh, it's popular and I'm going to butcher it, but what is it? Comparison is the death of like self-happiness or something like that. Comparison is the thief of joy. Yep. There you go. Thief of joy. See, man facts um we're all just out here trying to do the best we can that's every dog owner that's that's every business owner that's every dog trainer we're doing the best we can with it's the skills that we know 
that we that what we were taught, that we learned through people, through experience, through mentors. I, I wish that that everybody wasn't so gosh darn hard on each other, and I wish that we weren't so hard on ourselves and and on our dogs because you know I mean I think we're talking about it. We're your dogs are doing their best, and and they only know what we've taught them. And if you're frustrated with them as a dog trainer, I tell this to all my clients, if your dog is walking at heel like shit, I want you to take a time out and look at what you're doing because it's something that you're doing is why your dog is not walking at heel correctly. Everything you don't like about your dog is a self-reflection of you as a dog owner and your training. If your dog doesn't woe for shit, it's because you haven't woe broke your dog correctly. And you said, well, I have, he knows it. Well, you just said, whoa, six times. And in my book, when you say, whoa, a dog stops and doesn't move, that, that's what whoa training is. Not whoa, whoa, whoa. That, that's not a whoa broke dog. Um, that, that's a dog maybe with whoa recognition, right? So let's go back to the basics, even though your dog might be three. And let's go back to that initial whoa training and just do some yard work and touch some things up and tighten things up, you know? Um, but, but everybody does things differently and, and that's okay. And, and that we should be okay with this and acceptable with it. And this is how we learn. This is, you know, to go back to the question that you asked me about, you know, what, what did you learn or, or how would you do things differently? And I talked about having a program at making adjustments. This is the, that's, that's the adjustments. When you call other kennels and say, Hey man, I got this dog and I'm dealing with X, Y, Z. And he or she says, hey. I had a similar dog. Try this. And it works. Now you got a new tool in the toolbox, and you might not own, you might use it once a month, but gosh darn it, when you see that similar dog, you're gonna say, "I've seen this problem before, and I know what I know what tool I need to get." And now I've got the tool for the job, and I have something that that can work for that dog in that instance. And the only way that we learn that is by putting our own pride and our own training methods away and saying, "Hey, I need some help. How are you doing it? I'm seeing how Standing Stone's doing it. I'm seeing it how Lone Duck's doing it." I'm seeing it how, you know, whoever. There's a lot of people out there on YouTube and on Instagram that we can learn from. If it's not your friend, your buddy, your fraternity, or your dad or your uncle, you can be a guy like me that didn't grow up in it and just kind of submerge yourself and, and, and look and be a fly in the wall and you'll start to, to learn and see that. But that would be something that I'd like to challenge everybody with, but in particular, the, the field that I'm in, the Upland community, man, quit quit holding so much against each other and how people train and how people dogs look and what words they use and how they use their collar. And man, it takes a, it takes a lot of colors to make the rainbow. I think people forgot that. I would, uh, I would concur. All right. We've been recording for almost an hour and a half. We have not even covered like everything that we wanted to cover. Shocker. I'm going to, I want to start to wrap things up before I do though, Matt, Jeff, as always, what do you what do you got? What's on the tip of your tongue? I don't want to cut you off that you just want to like fire away at first. I've been talking a lot, man. Matt, you got anything? Um, you said that you did train some dogs that are interested in the hunt test world. Do you have any puppies on your kennel that do well out like in the hunt test world? Do you have any clients that run or are they mostly, you know, hunting dogs? Yeah, no, most mostly hunting dogs. Um I would say, I would say overall, and this is why the short hair is so popular as it is just so versatile and genetically put together for the most part. But you see the short hairs when you start putting in like the formalities and hunt test stuff together, they just pick it up. 
they, they mm-hmm. just really, really pick it up and do well. And you know what, what's odd? And I don't know. Maybe you guys see this some, sometimes, maybe not. Um, the setters are really, really well in that structured scenario. The English setters, at least out here in the West, do really well with, with that sort of setup. But, yeah, overall, I'd say the short hairs, but it's, it's mostly just the hunting dogs. Good, good, good. Um, all right, so we're going to start to wind things down here, Anthony. And what we like to do is we wrap things up with what we call sky blasting questions. Um, yep. We, who was, was it Tony Peterson who said uh, these are uh, kiss my ass questions? Kiss, right? my, kiss ass my ass shots. shots. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we're going to fire away random stuff could be hunting related could not be hunting related it's you know it could it could be anything first thing that comes to your mind you shut out the answer we'll just kind of wrap it's 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 a fun way to to kind of to kind of wrap things up you got it i'm in all right well let's go first boys i'll start all right first one favorite shotgun right here sweet 16 browning a5 maple nice those squared off backs those things are just it's such a unique looking gun yeah it is and and i've never owned a maple before the maple stock and ever since i've owned the maple i'm telling you what man she's easy to look at and easy to shoot and say sweet 16 that's a waterfowl gun yeah sure is. that's surprising <laughs> well you know my logo if you'll you'll notice is a mallard duck curl oh, yeah. and a pheasant feather okay um I, I i foul hunted heavy 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 until the house fire I shot loads and loads of ducks living in Kansas, obviously. So the flyaway was heavy in college. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This one's kind of off in left field somewhere, but favorite hooved animal. Favorite hooved animal. I own horses. I, I knew you were gonna go with horses. I figured that would be an easy one for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've I've got we own we own horses at the ranch, so I'm I'm definitely a horse guy. Um and to narrow it down, I'm a huge buckskin. Uh, buckskin are my go-to. Um, okay. and my, 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 my go-to horse is a horse that I named Chapo. Um, and he's, uh, a Tennessee Walker and he's a buckskin. Nice. Love the name. All right. Tropical beach or sightseeing in Europe. Dude, it's Europe all day. I don't have time. Really? For <laughs> all right. Last one I got is barbecue sauce or Buffalo sauce. Barbecue sauce, Kansas city, baby. Home, home nice. of the barbecue. <laughs> all right. That's all I got. Cheers, man. Thank you. Well, I can go. Uh, yeah. Favorite mount or taxidermy that you have at your house? Oh, dude, look right here. You ready? <laughs> this is um, a unofficial record holding sage grouse. Nice. Um, nice. This thing is an absolute tank, uh, and one of the last birds I shot over gnarly. Wow. Uh, prior to the fire this is uh, near and dear number one i mean just huge and epic but a uh, badass story to it uh, i've got a video of the retrieve from gnarly and it's just one of those memories that i i play often that awesome. is that is cool i mean yeah, those are monster. those are some of the those are some of the hardest upland birds to get too right um uh, not really they're they they live in pockets um but it's just they live in sage so if if you can just be Jesus for a couple of days and walk in sage, dude, you'll find. Nice. For you, it's a woodcock, right? That's the hardest one. 
I haven't even I haven't even gone after him yet, which is why I haven't. We gotta get we gotta give anything I've gone after has not eluded me, and I just haven't. I had to say it. That's funny. All right, Matt, go ahead. Is there uh, any bucket list hunt that you have left? Obviously, other than the woodcock. you know, worldwide, anything. Yeah, yeah. there's two that, uh, you know, doctor says you got a couple months to live, like, you know, cashing out the bank account, two hunts. Um, I've got to go to Alaska and shoot all four species of ptarmigan. Uh, that's Alaska in general for all the obvious reasons. But, man, ptarmigan live in some pretty special places. And the sites and places that ptarmigan live in Alaska, unbelievable. Uh, that that That's something that I'd like to do before, before the – I go, and then the other one is uh, a capricoli. And capricolis are like the size of turkeys, but it's an upland bird uh, in the UK. Search them. Check it out. Google it. I got to write this thing down. Dude, they will blow your mind the size of these things. Like, you, you can't even, it's like, how does this thing even fly? Um, but yeah, just Sometimes I, think, I wonder just how turkeys the fly. Size of it. Like the beak, dude, it, it, it looks prehistoric. Uh, definitely a descendant of a dinosaur, which is part of the allure, I believe. Oh, wow. Jeff, that's my shotgun question, but how long does that pallet of food that you drive into Denver for, how long does that last at your kennels? Um, So a pallet is, so I buy 75 bags of pallet, um, usually about a month and a half. Yeah, about a month and a half, 75 bags. Obviously, that's the kennel, but I also sell bags to my clients yeah. and customers, too. So I would say there's probably 15 to 20 bags that are just sold separately outside of, you know, what I'm feeding the kennel. Sure. So, yeah, I don't know. So I, I do three three-month programs. So we could do the math real quick. Uh, so that's like 425 bags in nine months, essentially. Jeez. <laughs> shout out to nook shook appreciate y'all for feeding my dogs yeah me and tyler are feeding a nook shook too so we Dude, we love that stuff I, I i'm talking about from six month old puppies to 10 year old dogs i have never seen such solid consistent stool and as a dog trainer you know we joke and a nook shook has that saying we talk shit around here it's like it's like one of their slogans um the the dogs you know feces tells a story of health both mental mm-hmm. and physical um, so it's, it's a telltale sign as a dog trainer and owner of what's going on with your dog. So top quality stuff, man. I, I, and I don't even get paid by a nook shook. Um, dude, I'm talking about yeah. quality food, uh, bar none. I've fed Yukonuba. I've fed pro plan. I've fed Victor. I, I, it's so as long as they can maintain the quality and the ingredients that they are, I'll, I'll be with a nook shook for a long time. Yeah, shout out to those guys. <clears throat> we 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 do not get paid or sponsored by them. We talk about them often though too. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Shout out to our yeah. Canada friends, feed dogs across America. You guys are killing it for us. Yeah, it's um, I've fed a lot of different foods to my dog and dogs, and I, I've fed Yukonuba and Purina Pro Plan Thirty Twenty. They're all they were all good. This is just seems to be just a just just a notch up. Yeah, and feeding less. Better yeah. quality and less feeding much per less. Day. Let's go yeah. shout out to the consumer. It's, ama- yeah. it's amazing though when you increase the food how quickly they can put on weight though. Woo! Yeah. I experienced that with our Vishla. I told Tyler I think I was feeding her. Two what was I feeding her, Tyler? Like two and a half cups. Were, I was feeding were, her what the what the bag said on the back mm, for her weight. Nope. 
Uh-uh. And I told yeah, him a don't, couple don't months trust in, Mac, I was like, trust the dog's body. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this was the off season too. So I'm looking at her. I'm like, Tyler, she's gaining weight, man. So I cut it down significantly and it didn't yep. take long. It was maybe a couple weeks and she, she yep. slimmed right back out. It was, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. But I, uh, so I've been, Matt got pretty lean for a little while here at the start of the season when he was hunting a bunch. And then, um, so I started to, to increase him on, he was getting fat. He's been in the vet a couple of times in the past, three times in the past two weeks. He's getting all, he has a little ulcer in his eye. And in a week he put on a pound and a half and I'm not feeding. That's like two cups a day. Totally. Yep. Yep. Right. Now he's not getting the run that he was before because, right. I mean, he's just laying low, but. Two cups a day, we're put on a pound and a half. Yeah, it's quality and stuff. And that's Dance, like no enough. food. Yeah. Yeah, dense and heavy. Good. It's the good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Um, up, okay. Tyler. All right. Am I up? Okay. Uh, yep. First one for you, Anthony, coffee or energy drinks? Energy drinks. Never had a cup of coffee in my life. And I'm oh, Italian. Facts. Well, like no espresso, it. none of that. Facts. Great answer. I know my great grandfather's just pissed off at me right now. And oh. Smelling coffee beans and eating a cannoli, shaking his head. You're you're in good company with Matt Jeske over there. Yeah, me and Tyler, we're we're the coffee snobs, that's for sure. I I'm 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 here for it either way. Whatever, however you got to get up and get in the field, I'm here for it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right, this this one could be a huge win or a huge miss, but we're gonna we're gonna see here. Okay, we're talking TV shows. All yeah. right. Yellowstone or Longmire? I don't even know what Longmire is. Oh, it's on. Oh, it's so his answer is Yellowstone, which is a which is a good answer anyway. (laughs) Longmire is Netflix. Okay, I'll have to check it out. Check check it out. I have to keep it because my wife is in Netflix. She's a Netflixer. We'll check it. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, favorite uh wild game to eat. Wow. Holy smokes. Wow. I can't quick fire that one. That's too hard. That's like bringing a fat kid to a candy store and saying, choose one. No. Oh, wow. Uh, Dude, for me, it's rough rough grouse for sure. For me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if we're narrowing it down birds, um, holy shit. I can't even do that. Uh, pass, dude. Uh, by default, <laughs> plead the fifth. They're I all like, good. I like too They're much all meat, good. dude. Oh, I'm over here damn. like Arby's, man. We have the meats. My head is going through menus. It's, it's probably probably Canada geese. It's got to be Canada geese. <laughs> yeah. Canada geese. <laughs> no, no, I prefer I prefer the snow geese. The sky carp is one <laughs> <Yeah>. of style. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm, okay, how about this? Your favorite preparation, favorite way to prepare uh, wild bird. Yeah, so anything Italian. I do uh, Bob White Alfredo. I do uh, Shark Tail Carbonara. I do, uh, yeah, any, any. When's dinner, man? When's yeah, dinner? Yeah, 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 coming. yeah, yeah. Any, any Italian food with game bird is my go-to. I combine the way that I grew up with my passion of bird hunting, and um, it makes pretty pretty delicious food. Good. That's a good answer. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, two more here. What first one? Have you ever been to Wisconsin? Never. Oh no, bullshit. Uh Pheasant Fe- wasn't Pheasant Fest in Wisconsin a couple of years ago. Uh I don't know. I don't think so. Okay, then no. It was close. It was close, I think. It was in Chicago. Was I, I I was at the Chicago one. Okay. Oh, Minnesota. 
That's it was, it was in Minnesota. 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 Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. That was last year, I think. That's, isn't last that where year was Fence there. Fresno headquarters is? Is Minnesota? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah, been there twice in like the last there. five years. So you've gotten close. Yeah, that's as close. Which, by the way, I'm supposed to be coming up there to shoot a woodcock next year. So I was gonna say we got woodcocks over here. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right, all right. Okay, we gotta ask then. What what part of the state are you heading to? Do you know yet? Oh gosh, no. Got to be Northwoods. Yeah, I, I'm not. You could, sure. you could shoot roughs and woodcock. I've got a couple clients go. that that live up that direction that I reached out to, and you know, obviously said that they would put me in the in, in the spot to to point a woodcock. So I'm not exactly sure where we're going yet. Okay. All right. Uh, all right, last one is the best way to plant a training bird. There's different that I've heard from different people, different methodologies about the best way to do it. Right. What What's your style? Yeah. Um, so the trainer in me is going to ask, how old's the dog? How much experience do we have? All of that. Um, the blanket answer is. Um, shit. Well. If you're using a flusher. You can't use a foot trap and you can't use a launcher because he's got a flush and you also can't put the bird to sleep because he'll just catch the bird asleep and pick it up. Um, so if we're using a flusher, you just got to, you know, grab him, grab him and dizzy him, get that head a little bit loose. When he breaks, when his head lets go, when his neck gets loose, you know, you've got his equilibrium off. Give him a little toss. He'll stay there, flush and flush him. If I am not using any traps at all and I'm using a pointer, I'm putting him to sleep, head tucked under the wing, legs out. I know that bird's going to stay there, which is I put in a position because the wind's going to work the way that I want it to. And I'm going to bring the bird, that dog, where I need that wind. I can just nudge that bird. Bird will get up and fly for me. Um, new dogs, I refuse to use the DT launchers because it often is abrupt and scares young new dogs. Bang! With this big old black trap and a bird flies out of it. So we use our new dogs, brand new introduction to birds on a check cord. It's the tip up metal tip up traps that you just step on the little metal and the front tips up dogs on a check cord. Um, and then if a dog struggles all together and not doing well with using its nose, whether it's a pointer or a flusher, um, we will just pull flight feathers, the first two primary flight feathers on the bird and let that bird run and just kind of flutter 10 yards, flutter 10 yards, flutter, let that dog loose, build prey drive, build excitement. In that moment where cheerleader voice, get it, get it, all right, all the, all the things to help build confidence in a young dog. So that's a multi-part answer, but yeah, that's, that's how we do it. That was perfect. That was, uh, that was the educate, the educational answer that I was looking for. And yeah, bingo. Into there. I'm in. So, that's right. Excellent. All right. Well, I appreciate it. you guys' time, man. I know that yeah. we, we burn it up and we didn't even really cover a whole lot of topics, good, but good. Man, I appreciate you guys' time and the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll um we we appreciate it as well. I'd love to have you back on sometime if you're open to it. Before we go though, um you you said at the beginning, do it again. If people want to get a hold of you, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to follow you on social media, how do how do they do that? Yeah, sure. So um all I have is Instagram. I don't have anything else but Instagram. Fetching underscore feathers is my personal page. Fetching underscore feathers underscore the kennel is all of my client kennel business. Um, and then fetching-feathers.com is all my apparel uh, details into the business, into the training programs uh, for anybody who's interested in getting their dog trained. And all my pertinent contact information is on all three of those. Uh, my my email address and phone number are on all three of those pages. Perfect. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, sincerely, though, thank you for, for taking the time and joining us. I'm glad you're getting some downtime and some rest. I'm glad you were happy that you took time away from 
that to spend some time with us. And uh, hey, good luck the rest of the season, Anthony. Cheers, guys. God bless you. Shoot straight. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. We really appreciate thanks. it. Awesome, guys. Thanks. <clears throat>